John 15, verse 7. Now, we have a new pulpit up here. We all have certain things to get used to. Some of you have said it's too bright. I don't have a place to put my hands. It's driving me nuts. I don't know where to put my hands anymore. So we, uh, but we're, we all have things to get used to here. John 15, starting in verse 7. Now, we have seen in this chapter that Jesus is using the imagery of the grapevine, the imagery of the vineyard, to communicate the importance of remaining in fellowship with Him, walking by means of the Holy Spirit is the term that Paul uses. They are uh, comparable to one another. We have seen in our study of this that when Jesus talks about abiding in Him, what He means is to remain in fellowship with Him. Abide is from the Greek word meno, meaning to, uh, to remain, to stay with, to abide, to continue. And it indicates being an active, continuous relationship with our Lord. Secondly, we saw that the term in me differs from the Pauline term in Christ. They are not the same thing. In Christ is a judicial term referring to our position in Christ that takes place at the instant of salvation when we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, a doctrine known as positional truth. So this is different. In me is used by the Apostle John to describe close relationship. So it is a fellowship term, not a judicial term. Jesus said that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That is not positional, that is relational. It is talking about the close, intimate fellowship which exists between God the Father and God the Son. Um, Putting all of that together, what we see in this passage is the growth in the Christian life, which is the unique spiritual life of this church age, is uniquely based on the believer's day-to-day relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We must continuously abide in Him. The fourth thing we've noticed is that there, the necessary condition for growth and production in the Christian life is abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Now, we need to make the observation we ended with this last time, and that is that In John 15, in this passage, you have the command to abide in Christ. This is the necessary condition for producing fruit. Production in the Christian life is the result of abiding in Christ. Now, if you go over to Galatians 5, and we did a lengthy study of Galatians 5, we saw that the necessary condition for producing the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, was walking by means of the Holy Spirit. That produces fruit. Now, if you set it up this way on the overhead, where abide produces fruit and walking by the Holy Spirit produces fruit, it becomes obvious that in biblical terminology, the concept of abiding in Christ is comparable or synonymous with walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. That in itself is instructive of what we need, what is involved in this. It's not only a relationship with the Holy Spirit, which is defined as the filling of the Spirit in some passages, the walking by the Spirit in other passages, but here it's abiding in Christ. They are comparable. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus Christ is synonymous. We are to abide and to walk. Now, the problem is that there are some people who interpret John 15 
as relating to salvation, that if you abide, that means truly saved, then you will produce fruit. The implication is that those who produce fruit are those who are saved. If you don't produce fruit, you're not saved. And they even go so far as to assert that if you can't see fruit in your life, then you really didn't have saving faith. Now, if this is true, that abiding is the condition for fruit, and walking is the condition for fruit, and abiding is equivalent to walking, if abiding is believing, then walking would be equivalent to believing. That's absurd. Let me, I, I can tell it's early for some of you, and that just, phew, right over your head. Let me cover that one more time. In John, abiding is the necessary condition to produce fruit. In Galatians, walking is the necessary condition for producing fruit. And that leads to the first conclusion, which is that abiding and walking are roughly synonymous. There is a claim out there in the marketplace of theological ideas that abiding really means faith, believing, believing and accepting Christ as your Savior. Assuming that to be true for the sake of argument, then, abiding, if abiding is equivalent to walking, that would mean that belief in Christ, accepting Christ as your Savior, would have to be equivalent to walking. Since it's clear that walking by the Spirit is a spiritual life concept and not a salvation concept, it shows that it is false to make abiding equivalent to belief. Did you catch it that time? If not, you'll have to get the tape. Go over two or three times. This is an important argument to show that abiding cannot mean belief. It has to mean spiritual life Fellowship, not justification faith. So we have seen that in detail, that, that this passage is talking about the believer's growth and his production in the spiritual life. We have seen that abiding in Christ is accomplished by walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, that the Christian life is a unique life, it is a supernaturally empowered life, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And we have seen that failure to abide in Christ means that we are a failure in the spiritual life, we are useless to Christ and discarded in divine discipline and the sin unto death, it doesn't mean that we lose our salvation, that's not the point of verse 6, but that we become useless in God's plan. Now, there's always someone who calls and asks me a question. Sometimes it's people who are getting the tapes and they're about six months behind. But it so happened I got a call with a question uh, yesterday and it relates to what we're talking about. I thought, well, it's a perceptive question. It's pushing the envelope a little bit, so we'll address it. it has to do with fruit bearing. Now, this individual was listening to the Galatians 5 series when we were dealing with the walking by the Spirit and asked the question of, well, okay, if the filling of the Spirit is really to be filled by means of the Spirit, which is a concept we saw from the from the Greek in Ephesians 5.18, that it's a, a dative of impersonal means, that we're filled by means of the Spirit, and what we are filled with is not the Spirit, the content is the Word of God. How exactly does that work? What exactly is the Spirit's role? 
And so as I thought about that last night, it worked something like this. Here's the great dynamic of our soul. It is our volition. We can exercise positive volition in terms of obedience and application of God's Word, or we can exercise negative volition to God's Word, in which case we're operating on the sin nature. Now, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, 16, you remember, or 5, yeah, 5, 16, it says, Walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and you will not, and there it's a negative may plus the uh, aorist subjunctive indicating that it will be impossible to fulfill the desires of the flesh. This shows the juxtaposition of the two. It's either one or the other. You're either walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, or you're um, operating according to the sin nature. It's one or the other. It's not both. It's not a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. It's one or the other. Now, what happens is that if volition is like a great gate in your soul, this is the issue. You make the decision. See, older... In, in, in older times, in, in years gone by, as, as some of this was developed, it was typical to speak of the filling of the Holy Spirit in terms of that. That's okay. Every, everybody drops something every now and then. Uh, those little racks don't hold everything real well. Um, it was typical to speak of the filling of the Holy Spirit and use the term control. Schaefer used the term control. Schofield used the term control. They really got that terminology from the matrix of the late 19th century Bible conference movements when you would have uh, a lot of Keswick speakers and some others come up. They had prophecy conferences. This was a great thing that they really promoted a lot of dispensational thinking at the end of the last century. They had the Niagara Bible conferences. Moody had the Northfield conferences up here at Northfield Mass., uh, they had other conferences that met down in New York, New York City and other places in, up in the north. And every year they had these great conferences, and there were a lot of the same speakers that came. And most of them were, were uh, almost all of them were dispensationalists. And they taught similar things on, the whole, on, on this whole concept of the spiritual life, but there were some important distinctions. And one of the distinctions has this idea of control of the Holy Spirit. Now, Chafer and Schofield picked up the terminology that the victorious life teachers used. Victorious life is another term, higher life, holiness, Keswick, all is very similar. And the idea that, that somehow um, if you just confess your sin, and some people get this idea that if you just confess your sin, that the Holy Spirit takes over. I mean, I thought that at one time. A lot of people I've talked to have thought that, that if you just confess your sin, that somehow the Holy Spirit is automatically going to take the doctrine you've learned and apply it for you. In other words, I won't have to really exercise my volition and not do the things that I'm not supposed to do. It'll just happen. And it's sort of a let go, let God type of thinking, a passivity in the Christian life. But the Holy Spirit never overrides our volition. He influences. That's a better word than control. Influences our volition. The same way that the sin nature is not the source of sin, volition is the source of sin. It is the sin nature, though, that is the primary influence. So let's break that down and see how this works. In volition, what you have, in the spiritual life, what you have is the Holy Spirit operates over here to help you learn doctrine. It, he stores it in your memory, and He reminds us of the doctrine that's there. So as we go through life and we come to a situation where we have to make a decision, and we can apply doctrine or not apply doctrine, we've learned it, it's stored in our soul, 
It's stored in the memory, and the Holy Spirit brings it to our mind. He reminds us of it. Now we have a decision to make. It's real clear what the issues are, and we have to decide to apply doctrine or not. We make the decision to apply doctrine. Analogy is when you eat. You make the decision whether or not to swallow. But once you swallow, involuntary reflexes take over. You don't have any volitional involvement anymore. And what goes on inside your body, inside your metabolism, to break down the food and to uh, transmit it to all the cells in your, in your muscles and all over your body is outside of your volitional control. But you have to make the all-important decision to swallow. The same way you make the decision to apply doctrine. That's the gate. You make that decision, and what happens on the other side is the Holy Spirit takes that doctrine, that doctrinal decision you've made to apply doctrine, and He uses that to strengthen your soul. It then produces endurance and develops towards spiritual maturity so that you can eventually, as you reach maturity, produce fruit. That's the dynamic. You can't go any more than that. We can't break the Holy Spirit down into chemical formulas like you can metabolism in the body. But the Holy Spirit helps you learn it, helps you understand it, stores it in your memory, brings it to your consciousness so that you can recall the appropriate doctrine. You make the decision, and then on the other side, after you've made that decision, the Holy Spirit uses that to strengthen your soul, which is called edification in the Scriptures, Endurance produces endurance, maturity, and production in the spiritual life. That's how the dynamic takes place. And what's integral to this whole process is that we are abiding in Christ. We abide, we remain in Christ. Now, when we come to verse 7 in chapter 15, we see from verse 7 down to verse 12 that there are three benefits to abiding. Three benefits to abiding. And the first is that abiding in Christ is necessary for a successful prayer life. Abiding in Christ is necessary for a successful prayer life. Now, what do I mean by a successful prayer life? I do not mean that you, your prayers are answered the way you want them to be answered. Let me say that again. A successful prayer life does not mean that God will always answer your prayers the way you intend for them to be answered. A successful prayer life is defined as a prayer life that gets your petitions heard at the throne of grace. See, if you're out of fellowship, if you're in sin, if you're in carnality, walking according to the sin nature, your prayers aren't going to be heard, so you are unsuccessful in making your petitions. All we're talking about is having successful Petition successfully being heard. John 15:7 reads, "If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you." Literally, it's the word "ask whatever you will," the leo meaning desire or want, whatever you want, and it will be done for you. Now, this begins in the Greek with the, with the uh, phrase aeon menete. This is the first word. It indicates that it is a conditional clause. E-A-N indicates that it is a third-class condition. 
The verb is an aorist active subjunctive, and in the Greek you have four different ways. In classical Greek there were more, but in Koine Greek there were four different ways to express conditions. First class conditions, if, and I'm assuming the condition is true. When Satan said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, he used a first class condition, if and you are the Son of God. Second class condition, if and you are not. That's the implication of second-class condition. Third-class condition usually indicates pure contingency. It expresses pure hypothetical situation. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. It always emphasizes your volition in this kind of a context. So when it says, if you abide in me, maybe you will abide and maybe you will not. It's up to your volition whether or not you're going to stay in fellowship and walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So, aeon plus the second person plural, aorist active subjunctive of meno, which means to abide, to remain in fellowship with Christ, means if, and it's your decision whether you will abide in me, remain in fellowship with me or not. And it's up to you whether or not my words will abide in you. So, this is pure contingency and emphasizes the importance of the believer's volition as to his continuation and growth in the spiritual life. You have to exercise your volition and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Now, two conditions are given in this verse for answered prayer. The first condition is that the believer's fellowship with Christ. If you abide in me, if you continue to be in fellowship with me, that is, you're you're walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, you're filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, and you are continuously in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's the first condition. But that's not enough. It's not enough to simply be in fellowship. It's not enough to simply confess your sins and be cleansed and to be in fellowship. There is one other condition, and that is knowledge of doctrine. Not only are we to abide in Christ, but His Word is to abide in us. Now, if abide means continuous relationship, think about that. If you have a continuous relationship with me, if you stay in fellowship with me and my words have a continuous relationship in you, that indicates something going on dynamically in the mentality of our soul in relationship to the Word of God. It's not just a passive sitting down and learning doctrine in Bible class. But there is a... A, a learning process that goes on, and, and once you have acquired the information, the gnosis, the academic knowledge, then there is meditation and contemplation on the doctrine. Your, your volition is engaged again so that it becomes epinosis. You believe it, and God the Holy Spirit makes it epinosis, and then you apply it. Your thinking is renovated. It is transformed. It is you exchange the old way of thinking for a new way of thinking. So the condition is, the twofold condition for prayer is number one, fellowship with Christ, and number two, you have to have some doctrine. You have to be able to, you have to know, have some doctrine to be able to know what to pray for and what not to pray for. The first condition 
mentioned here emphasizes being in fellowship. And it reminds us of the passage in the Old Testament in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God is not, God does not have to listen to our prayers. There is nothing in the nature or essence of God or in the nature of our relationship with Him that makes it mandatory for God to listen to us. I always think about a situation that occurred about about 20 plus years ago when there was a, uh, I forget who, uh, a particular pastor from Oklahoma, I believe, that was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and always seems like the liberal press always wants to go after the, the Southern Baptists. This year, the Baptists said they wanted to pray for all the Muslims and Jews so that they would get saved and everybody, including the President of the United States, has accused them of hate crimes. That's absolutely absurd. We're, going, we're moving in a direction in this country that within, if we keep going this way, in another 10 or 15 years it will be criminal to do what we're doing because we're saying there's only one way to heaven. And the United Nations has passed certain resolutions and our president has gone along with them indicating that anybody who tries to convert somebody from their religious beliefs is guilty of a hate crime. That makes witnessing, according to the UN, a hate crime comparable to uh, uh, the Holocaust of Germany in World War II. Think about that. That's where we're headed. So anyway, that's the current situation. But 20 years ago, they went after Bailey Smith. I think that's who it was. Bailey Smith said that God doesn't hear the prayers of Jews. Now, Bailey Smith was absolutely correct. Unfortunately, the press picked it up. and They don't know any doctrine, so they just felt like he was making some sort of racist statement. But what he was saying was nothing more than God doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers. God doesn't even hear the prayers of believers that are out of fellowship. So why is God going to listen to the prayer of somebody who's, who's not even a believer? The point is, there's nothing in God that makes it mandatory upon Him to listen to our prayers. We must be in fellowship with Him. And this is the condition that Jesus is talking about, abiding in Him. So we see from this that the believer is to maintain an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ if he is going to have his prayers heard. Secondly, the believer is to maintain an ongoing relationship with Bible doctrine, with the Word of God, if he is going to have his prayers heard. If you don't know what God says, you don't know anything about what to pray for. Third, the believer is to maintain an ongoing relationship with God the Holy Spirit. And in some sense, all of these are synonymous. There's an overlapping among all of these. This is Galatians 5.16. The believer is to maintain... An ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit defined as the filling of the Spirit and walking by means of the Spirit. And D, if the believer is not walking by the Spirit, then he is living according to the sin nature, and that means that you are regarding iniquity in the heart. Therefore, prayers go unheard and unanswered. The only way to have a successful prayer life, then, is to not just get back in fellowship for the moment, That's not the idea here. The idea of abiding is continuous relationship, not living in carnality, not doing whatever you want to and being out of fellowship and all of a sudden getting in trouble. 
pulling the plug, using 1 John 1, 9, getting back in fellowship, and then firing off a quick prayer and saying, God's got to answer me. That's not the idea that we have here. The idea is abiding. It's continuous relationship. It's, it's growth. Now, the main verb here is iteo. It is the aorist middle imperative, second person plural, meaning to ask or to request. Now, when we see the second person plural, both in terms of if you abide in me, you is second person plural, ask whatever you will, second person plural, and it will be done to you, the plural he's talking to is specifically the eleven disciples. He's not talking, he may be talking through them to all church age believers, but primarily he is talking to the eleven. He is telling them that there is a mission that is about to be accomplished, about to be delegated to them, for them to go out and scatter throughout the world carrying the gospel. And as a result of that, if they are going to be successful in that, they have to maintain an intimate fellowship with the Lord, and this will be revealed in their prayer life. There is application of this to the believer, but its primary implication and interpretation is to the 11 apostles that were present in the room. He says, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, there is a parallel passage to this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, and it utilizes the same verb, iteo. In 1 John 5, 14, it says, This is the confidence we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now, let's put our chart up on the overhead of what used to be the top circle and bottom circle, and now it's the left circle and right circle. I know, that's just going to confuse everybody. Acts 16.31, we trust Christ as our Savior, and we are said to be in Christ. We are identified with Him with the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. That is positional truth. Then we have the right circle, which is our relationship with Christ, and it is called filling, the operational term is filling by means of God the Holy Spirit. And it is called walking by the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 and abiding in me in this particular passage. Now, we have to be abiding in the bottom circle to learn doctrine, to assimilate it into our soul where the Holy Spirit teaches us and fills us with it. The result of that is that having learned doctrine, we now have a concept of what the will of God is. So, if we're not spending very much time in the bottom circle, then we're not going to know what the will of God is. And if we don't know what the will of God is, how can we do what 1 John 5.14 says? That we need to ask anything according to His will. That means there has to be enough doctrine in the soul to be able to ask according to to His will. I'm going to go ahead and move past that. 1 John 5.15 says, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. Now, 1 John 5.14-15 is directed to all believers in the church age. So it is John, notice it's John that wrote John 15 and is writing in 1 John 5. He is emphasizing 
the certainty and the confidence that we can have in prayer. And that comes as a result of knowing something. We have to know doctrine. We can't ask according to His will. Now, let's back up a minute. Some of you haven't been here on Wednesday night when we covered the whole concept of the will of God. There, is, there are two or three different ways that we talk about the will of God. First of all, we have the sovereign will of God. Now, the sovereign will of God includes everything that God has decreed to take place in human history. This includes both the good and the evil and includes what is sometimes called God's permissive will. So, we'll use that this circle to describe God's sovereign will. Everything that happens in human history is inside of this circle. Is that what we're talking about in 1 John 5.14? If we ask anything according to His sovereign will, He hears us. No, that would be absurd because that, we don't know. Number one, we can't know what God's sovereign will is until it happens. And number two, is that includes both the evil and the good and we're not to pray for evil. Then as a subcategory of God's sovereign will, we have God's revealed will. This is what's included within the Scriptures. And the canon of Scripture was closed in about 95 A.D. And God is no longer in the process of disclosing new revelation. In other words, when you sit down and you say, okay, I want to know what God's will is on a particular matter, God's not going to speak to you. If we believe the canon is closed, God's not going to speak to you. God's not going to give you some sort of inner feeling, some sort of liver quiver that uh, when you're sitting there and you set your options out in front of you and you look at them and you try to throw the dice or something and say, God, show me which way to go. That's not how God operates since the closing of the canon. All we have is the revealed will of God. Now, uh, as we say, there's, a, there's another type of will that sometimes is discussed. And that is God's individual will. And it's true that God does have specific individual will for us at times. Not all the time. Sometimes it doesn't matter whether we live in New York City or Los Angeles. What matters is how we are living our life in the process, learning doctrine, what our priorities are, applying doctrine, etc. We're not talking about that because that's going to work itself out eventually Anyway, God's individual will is not a guessing game. It's not a shell game. God is not involved in trying to play some kind of hide-and-seek with you over your destiny on planet Earth. So, therefore, the only thing that we can infer from this passage is God must be talking here about His revealed will. If we ask anything according to His revealed will, He hears us. That's according to the Scripture. So this is not talking about prayer related to some particular situation or adversity that you're encountering. This is not the kind of prayer, Lord, pay my bills this month. Make something happen so that I'll have enough money to cover all my indiscretions and irresponsibilities. That's not what this is talking about. This is not, Lord, give me a new car. The old clunker keeps falling apart and I can't afford to get it fixed. And I certainly can't afford a a, a new car payment. This is not a prayer for some sort of miracle. Neither does this cover the idea of, Lord, heal me of cancer. Resolve this problem in my life. No matter how sincere we might be, this is not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about 
petitions and requests to God that can be substantiated in relation to His revealed will. This is not talking about... We have no idea. You get up and uh, many of our prayer requests are, are based on variable circumstances that we're uncertain of. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about uncertainties that would fall within the category of God's sovereign will. We don't know what He's going to allow. We don't know what He wants. We do know certain things about how He wants us to think, how He wants us to, to respond, the kind of doctrine He wants us to apply in our lives. So when we look at these passages like 1 John 5, that are talking about praying according to His will, the only way we can make sense of this passage is to define His will as His revealed will consistent with all the mandates, prohibitions, directions, procedures that God has outlined in the Scriptures. And because we know that we are praying consistently with those mandates in the Scriptures, those principles in the Scriptures, we know that He hears us, that we have, um, that He hears our petition, we're in fellowship, He hears us, and furthermore, that He will answer those petitions positively. That's what verse 15. We know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. So the issue in applying this particular uh, principle is that we need to understand the Word of God. The better we understand the Word of God, the better we let the Word of Christ uh, abide within us, the more we will be able to ask consistent with His revealed will. So we need to form our prayers in terms of things like, Lord, help me understand how or which doctrine I need to apply to this test. Help me to understand how to apply a particular doctrine. Help me to understand which doctrine I need to apply to this particular test. Lord, help me see the ways that cosmic thinking affects my opinions and my viewpoints so I can renovate my thinking. Lord, help me to see how to apply doctrine to this test. That's uh, James uh, 1.5. Any man ask uh, for wisdom, God will give it to him. The only way that we can know His will is to assimilate the doctrine into our soul so that we are thinking as Christ thinks. That way we can evaluate the circumstance based on doctrine and then we can pray accordingly. So back to John 15:7. Here it states that His Word abides in us, and that is the continuous process of learning, metabolizing, and applying doctrine in our life. Conclusion, to have an efficient and effective prayer life, we must stay in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and we must fill up our souls, saturate our thinking with Bible doctrine. The result of that eventually is fruit production. Just as you eat and you eat and you eat and your body breaks everything down that you eat into its various components and distributes it throughout your body and the consequence of that is that you have energy, you have muscle growth and the ability to do certain things and that's how it works in the spiritual life. You take in the Word, you take in the Word, you apply it. God the Holy Spirit is the one who then takes that and strengthens your soul and produces fruit as the byproduct of what? Your volition being positive to learning doctrine. So we come to the second result of abiding, and that is 
that it is necessary to glorify God. Abiding glorifies God in John 15:8. This is the goal of the spiritual life. This is the goal that God has, His will and His plan and His purpose is for Him to be glorified in the angelic conflict. John 15:8 says, My Father is glorified by this. For this is what follows. That you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, there's a couple of things we have to focus on in this passage uh, exegetically to make sure we understand it correctly. First of all, the main verb here is doxoxo, D-O-X-A-Z-O, doxoxo. It's the aorist passive indicative indicating past tense, but it's a future aorist indicating the certainty of the action in the future, so it's viewed as a past tense. It means to glorify or to honor someone. God is glorified. God is honored. We honor Him and we show respect for Him in terms of the angelic conflict by producing fruit. But we don't produce the fruit. It's the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit in us. What we do is we focus on abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, staying in fellowship, learning doctrine, and then eventually it is the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit. It is the fruit that is the basis for glory. Now, one thing we should note in this passage, you go back and you look at verse 2 and it talks about fruit. You look at verse 4 and it talks about more fruit. And then here it talks about much fruit. There are three different stages of Christian uh, adulthood manifested here. There are those who produce fruit, those who produce more fruit, and those who produce much fruit. The difference is related to abiding in Christ. But the goal is to produce fruit. Now, a plant does not produce fruit until it reaches maturity. So we have to go through that, that growth stage from infancy to maturity before fruit appears and begin, begins to be produced. And how do we grow? Peter learned, learned well and at the end of John. They're out on the beach and Jesus is talking to Peter and, and ask him, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now, most of the time, people spend a lot of time talking about the shift in words in the Greek for love, and they somehow ignore the fact that the mandate is to feed the sheep. But Peter didn't miss that. In uh, 1 Peter 2.1, he picks up that mandate. And he says that we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. Peter caught the message that it's only by feeding the sheep that you produce growth. That's the focus of the pastor. That was the focus of the apostolic ministry, is to feed the sheep. Unfortunately, too many people get distracted by all the secondary things that can go on in churches and in congregations. They get distracted by programs, get distracted by music, get distracted into discipleship and all kinds of things. But the Scripture says it is the Word of God that produces growth. That's the focus of the pastoral ministry is to feed the sheep because it's only through the nourishment of doctrine that we can grow and mature in the spiritual life. And that is what is the basis for producing fruit. Now, this passage says that we glorify God, we honor God before the angels and man as we produce fruit. But something else is the result. It says in the Greek that we become, it's translated, and so prove to be my disciples, but that's not really what it says in the Greek. 
The verb is uh, genomai, kai geneste, it's the aorist passive of genomai, which can mean to become. Here's a list on the overhead of all the meanings of genomai. Come to be, become, originate, be born or begotten, arise, come about, be made, created, happen, take place, then further down to become something, to denote a change of location, to come or to go. And then finally, it can just be a substitute for the general word, a, a, a me, which means to be. So it's a vast amount of meanings. I don't think it means here, prove to be my disciple. That is a translator's interpretation. And he, I would take it from this that the translator thought that the passage deals with salvation because so many people want to make disciple equivalent to believer. But you can be... Uh, uh, but disciple does not necessarily mean a believer, but a believer who is advancing to spiritual maturity. The term mathetes for disciple means a learner, a student. There may be disciples in some passages that aren't even believers. In other passages, they're just, just a general synonym for believers. And in even other passages, it's a term for mature believers, which I, I take it is what this passage is talking about, that you will become disciples, true disciples. Advanced disciples. It's talking about spiritual maturity here. It's not talking about proof. It's talking about the fact that you will become a mature disciple through bearing much fruit. That is the evidence of your discipleship. Now, the third thing that we learn in this passage is that abiding in Christ is necessary to be the beneficiaries of God's personal love for the believer. God will still exercise impersonal love toward you if you are a carnal believer. He will still love you, but not as He will if you are an advancing believer. You have to be in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, abiding in Christ, in order to be a beneficiary of God's personal love. And this is measured through objective standards. Look at verses 9 and 10. So often people say, well, I love Jesus. Why? Well, I just, it just makes me feel so warm and fuzzy inside. And I go to church and I sing certain songs and it just makes me feel so close to God. I just love the Lord so much, don't you? Well, the Scripture gives us a criteria for measuring how well we love the Lord. Look at verse 9. The pattern here is, is Jesus Christ and His fellowship with the Lord. Just as the Father has loved me, and that's talking about their intimate relationship, the Father's plus R to the the Son's plus R, His perfect righteousness to the Son's perfect righteousness. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So here he's viewing them not simply as believers in terms of impersonal love, because the Father does not have impersonal love towards the Son. Why? Because the Son is perfect righteousness. Impersonal love, remember, is that love we exercise to someone who is maybe at that moment in time offensive to us, obnoxious to us, not doing what we want, yet we are going to still do what is best for them. It is unconditional love. The Father does not have that kind of love for the Son because they are in perfect harmony, perfect fellowship, perfect intimacy. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. So he's viewing them as abiding disciples at that point. I have loved you, continue, present tense, present, I mean, excuse me, it's an aorist 
imperative there emphasizing priority, abide in my love, continue to abide in my love. Just as indicates that this is the pattern. The pattern is the Son's relationship to the Father. The Son's relationship in the Trinity. This is the pattern. Jesus Christ has set our precedent for the spiritual life. So abiding in my love, therefore, indicates relationship. Just as it's the relationship between the Son and the Father, the fellowship between the Son and the Father, it is the fellowship of the believer to God the Son, to our Savior. Now the standard is given in the next verse, verse 10. If, third class condition, maybe you will, maybe you will not, if you keep my commandments... These are all the commandments, all the mandates, all the prohibitions given in the Scripture for the spiritual life of the believer. If you keep my commandments, this defines that circle, that boundary of the uh, right circle, the circle of our temporal relationship. If we stay inside the boundary, obeying the positive commandments and avoiding the prohibitions, you will abide in my love. How do we know if we love the Lord? It's measured by obedience. Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my word. It's not measured by emotion. It's not measured by warm fuzzies. It's not measured by sentimentality. It's measured by obedience. The criterion is not not emotion. It is obedience. It's not subjective impressions. It's objective reality. It's not warm fuzzies, it's obedience to God's Word. We have to make Christ's thinking our thinking, Christ's goals our goals, and we have to have Christ's character develop in us, and that happens only as a result of abiding in Christ. The criterion is not emotion. Now the third thing, or the fourth thing that we notice in this passage, is that abiding in Christ continuously results in the completion of divine joy. It continuously results in the completion of divine joy. John 15:11. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in Your joy may be made full. So that your joy may be made full. And the word there translated full is from the Greek plerao, which indicates in this context something that is filled up or brought to completion. It's almost a synonym for uh, telios, which means to bring something to completion or to perfect it. It means to fill it up. So that your joy may be filled up. And it indicates that there is a progressive nature here to joy. A progressive nature to joy. That these things refers to doctrine. These things, all the principles that I have taught you, I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. This tells us that joy is not emotion. Joy that Jesus is talking about is based upon learning certain principles and looking at life a certain way and responding to the situations in life based upon those principles. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be made full. So let's look at the doctrine of joy. The doctrine of joy. What does the scripture teach about joy? And let's try to understand this. This is not simply happiness. We have to understand that. Point number one. Joy. The Greek word is kara. C-H-A-R-A. Kara. Joy is the biblical term for the inner stability, contentment, and tranquility which belongs to God and is bequeathed to men and is radically different from human happiness. That's the starting point of our definition. Joy is the biblical term for inner stability, contentment, and tranquility. Those are three synonyms that help us get our hands around this this somewhat nebulous concept of happiness. you ever try to define happiness? What is happiness? Especially if if you're not talking about an emotion. Joy is the biblical term for the inner stability, contentment, and tranquility which belongs to God and is bequeathed to men. It's radically different from human happiness. Point number two. What is human happiness then? Human happiness is based on circumstances, people, and emotions. Human happiness is always based on circumstances, people, and emotions. Believers and unbelievers can all have human happiness. Things go well, we get excited and stimulated, and we feel good and we say we're happy. The dictionary defines happy as that which is characterized by good luck, fortune, or providential circumstances. Not exactly biblical concepts. So when we talk about biblical joy, we're not talking about happiness in that sense. The the dictionary goes on to define it as characterized by good luck, fortune, or providential circumstance and characterized by feelings of pleasure and satisfaction. Now that's not quite what we're talking about. We're talking about something more along the lines of complete stability Tranquility and contentment, not an emotion. Third point, the joy of Christ is based on the internal absolutes of God's character and His plan. Those internal absolutes would refer to the principles of Scripture. The joy of Christ is based on the internal absolutes, because we have internalized doctrine, the internal absolutes of God's character and His plan, not on people, circumstances, and uh, situations or emotions. It is based on the absolutes of God's character and His plan. So let's think about this in terms of God's character, point four. In terms of His own character, God's joy is related to His own attributes, his His own essence. For example, joy is related to God's eternality. God is eternal life. That means that God always has had maximum joy, so it never is dependent upon the successes or failures of His creatures. That means that when you fail God, God is not sad. God does not lose His joy. God is not unhappy because you have gotten involved knee-deep carnality or neck-deep carnality. You have not hindered God's happiness. He is just as stable, just as happy, just as filled with joy as ever. So God's joy is a maximum joy that is not dependent on the successes or failures of His creatures. It has always been the same. It does not increase or diminish. He has been eternally 
uh, joyful. So when you think that your failures make God sad, that is the height of human arrogance. Okay, a second attribute. Joy is related to His immutability. Joy is related to His immutability, which means that it never increases or diminishes. It's always the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His joy never changes. It's always the same. And then third, it's related to His omniscience. God's omniscience means that He knows all the knowable. That means for all eternity He has known all the knowable. He has known about all your successes and failures throughout all eternity, and it has never shaken His happiness one little bit. He is just as filled with joy as ever. So in His omniscience, He has complete stability, tranquility, and contentment, and it is not at all dependent upon anything that a creature does or does not do. Therefore, point number five, in eternity past, God determined in the council of divine decrees to share His joy with mankind. That is the plan of salvation. This meant that if joy is related to His mental attitude, His omniscience, and His knowledge, that He must first share His thinking with mankind. He must first share His thinking with mankind. We saw in point four that God's joy is related to His knowledge, His omniscience. It's related, it means that He has a relaxed mental attitude. And so that in order to share His joy with mankind, He must share His thinking with mankind. And 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us that we have the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ. So the way to have the joy of Christ is through appropriating the thinking of Christ. That's the connection. Point number six. The basis for true joy, then, in this life begins at the cross. It is impossible for an unbeliever to have this kind of joy and stability and tranquility. It begins at the cross. At the cross, you don't get it all, though you only get the potential for divine joy. It is based upon growth. That's the idea of plerao here, filling it up. It is a process of growth based upon learning and assimilating doctrine and abiding in Christ. So the basis for joy begins at the cross, and this was recognized by David in Psalm 51.12 in his famous confession after the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's the starting point. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. In carnality, he had lost that joy that he had from his salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. That was David's prayer. Point number seven. Human happiness is always based on transitory circumstances and is thus superficial, temporary, and unable to sustain you through times of adversity. No matter how excited you may be, no matter how wonderful things may be, no matter how uplifting certain choruses or hymns or songs might be, or how excited we are when we leave church some morning because we had a special experience with Jesus, it doesn't sustain us in times of adversity. What sustains you is the doctrine in your soul not the emotional, religious experiences you have and that you misinterpreted as being a closer walk with Jesus. This is one of the terrible things that has infected American Christianity. It's not emotion, it's based on doctrine. 
Point number eight, the key to maintaining divine joy is to make your spiritual life the highest priority in life. We have to make our relationship with Jesus Christ, which is based on knowledge of doctrine, the highest priority in life. That is the only way that we can abide in Christ. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. It is related to the these things, and if we don't have the these things, the Bible doctrine that Jesus taught, then we can never have true joy in our life. And finally, this goes back to the opening illustration, that joy is the byproduct of abiding. We make the decision to abide, to walk by means of the Spirit, to apply doctrine. It is God the Holy Spirit then who produces the fruit in our life. We don't do it. We don't go out and say, I'm going to be joyful today. I'm going to have love today. Now, these things are commanded of us, but they are the byproduct of application of doctrine. Even in, even in James 1, 2 through 4, when we're commanded to have joy, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, what comes after that? Because you know. See, it's a causal participle there. Because you know something. The knowledge, we apply the knowledge, and the byproduct is tranquility, peace, and stability. The joy, the fruit of the Spirit, is the byproduct of application of doctrine, and it is God the Holy Spirit then who takes that doctrine, strengthens our soul, and produces fruit and maturity in the life. So joy is the byproduct of abiding and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Now next time, we're going to see that Jesus returns to the commandment, the new commandment that He gave earlier in the upper room. There He commanded the disciples. He said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Now He's going to come back in verse 12 and reemphasize that. The question is, why does Jesus return all of a sudden to this theme of love in verse 12? So you'll have to be here next time to get the answer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this privilege to study Your Word, to see the importance, to be challenged by the importance of abiding in Christ, of our day-to-day, moment-by-moment relationship with Him and dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that certain. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there is no one who escapes that curse. So we all are in need of salvation. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as our substitute. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that right now that would take the opportunity to trust Christ as their Savior and to secure their eternal destiny by faith alone in Christ alone. And, Father, for the rest of us, we pray that we might be challenged to continue to advance towards spiritual maturity, to learn your word and let our thinking be transformed by renewing our mind with Bible doctrine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.